Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. As you know, we are in the middle of Lent here, and today's passage, which is John 12, 20 through 33, is very dense. And let me give you a heads up. It is going to be a little bit longer podcast because there's just a lot of things to work through. Now, mind you, if you are preparing sermons from this, you're not going to want to try to get every point in because there's just too much to go with. So hopefully something we um, discuss today will trigger at least one idea that you can build off of for your sermon. But uh, have fun and uh, put on your seatbelts because we've got a lot to talk about. So I'm going to start off the questioning here with asking Alan to put this into to the context of our Lenten journey. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, you know, it's not surprising that the Revised Common Lectionary follows John 3 with this passage, because in the larger context of John's Gospel, this whole chapter, chapter 12, serves as a kind of summary of Jesus' public ministry. Because right after this, in chapters 13 to 17, Jesus has a meal with his disciples and this extended discourse where he's preparing them for his departure. And then 18 through 21 deal with his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection appearances. In that kind of setting, you would expect it to be a fairly densely packed passage because it touches on most of the major themes in John's gospel, including Jesus being lifted up for the sake of giving life to those who believe, and that is his glorification, and the light and the darkness, and the question of belief and unbelief. And so, you know, that's what we're dealing with today. Is there, you know, uh, one of the things that I wanted to kind of draw out are really putting John's gospel again into that um, context with the other gospels, just reminding us how it how it's different. Well, so this the whole structure of John's gospel is different from the synoptic gospels. And, and actually, each gospel is unique in its own right. Uh, you know, in Matthew's gospel, you have, you have narrative interspersed with these longer teaching sections. Uh, and many have observed that there's kind of a five-fold pattern there. Um, Mark's gospel is almost straight narrative with very little discourse. I've often joked, Luke's gospel tells a lot more um, of, the, of, the, of the story of Jesus' ministry up front. And then you have a shorter, what's called a sermon on the plain in Luke chapter 6. But then you have this long journey to Jerusalem part of Luke's gospel that you don't find in the other gospels. And I've often joked that that's sort of an extended sermon on the way to Jerusalem because a lot of the material you find in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is found in Luke's journey, journey to, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in John, you have a gospel that really focuses on these major discourses of Jesus. It's, it, it's not a very narrative gospel at all. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the Johannine Jesus explains who he is. And mm-hmm. I, I should probably, mm-hmm. I guess I should probably say, you know, one thing we didn't talk about last week with reference to John's gospel is that Jesus speaks with a different voice in John's gospel than the Jesus of the synoptics. Mm-hmm. And, and that might be disconcerting to some of us, mainly because most of us are familiar with the synoptic Jesus. Even though we might have some favorite verses in John's gospel, it, when you take those verses in the context of the discourse as a whole, or the gospel as a whole, the overall impression is that we have a very different take on Jesus 
in John's gospel. And that can, can really shake people up, especially if you're looking just to take the gospels at face value. Um, we really have to understand what's going on with gospel origins. You know, Jesus' ministry happened. It, it was a fact of history. We don't have anything that Jesus himself wrote. We don't have anything that comes directly from Jesus. Everything was the tradition about Jesus. Very likely that originated in the Aramaic language. And somehow along the way, it got translated into Greek. And then the gospel writers selected portions of that tradition to include in their individual gospels about Jesus. And you know, the fact is, each one of them have a very unique presentation. There are passages in all four Gospels that are only found in that Gospel. So, you know, to some extent, we're dealing with the fact that all of the Gospels are interpretations of who Jesus is. And, and perhaps, you know, those of us who are most familiar with the synoptic Jesus, maybe we, we're a little bit unsettled by the Johannine Jesus because... That phenomenon occurs more to a greater extent, mm-hmm. I think, in John's gospel than what we have in the synoptic gospels. So, you know, and you know, if if you're if you're saying if if the question that comes to mind then is, well, which one is the real Jesus? I, I mean, you know, that is one of the question marks I think folks could have. I think yeah. folks in 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 their congregations could have. Um, if they start reading John, um, you know, and here we are, we generally don't have John in a revised common lectionary and here it pops up and how do we add it into this kind of right. context of Mark that we are walking right. through? Well, and, and so for me, I think there are two things we have to understand. First of all, if we're wanting the real Jesus to be Jesus as he was in his historical identity we don't have that. Right. We what don't we, have, yeah. What we have is four gospel narratives about Jesus. Now, are those narratives authentic? I would say so. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but if we're, again, as I've said before, if, we're, if we go to the gospels looking for sort of an Encyclopedia Britannica article that's going to give us all the facts, we're, that's not what we find. And, and, you know, part of the challenge with John's gospel and, and John's, Jesus, so to speak, is that I think perhaps that interpretive element is is greater in John's gospel than it is in the synoptic gospels. And so um, that's that's kind of what makes John's gospel so challenging for us. Um, so I tend to look at John's gospel as sort of providing a different angle on Jesus from that particular theological perspective. That's not to say that there's nothing historical in John's gospel. It's just to say that, you know, um, the bottom line is that the real Jesus is viewed through the lens of the gospel writers in all four gospels. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that, that that's just something we deal with when we're looking at a gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as we head into it, I think, you know, one of the things when you read it is it seems to be full of irony. Um, is it? How do you explain some of these um, 
pieces. Yeah. We, last week, we took the whole chapter instead of just the selection in the in the, in the lectionary. I, we kind of have to do that again today. You really have to do that with John's gospel. You can't just select out a piece. <laughs> you have to look at what comes before and what goes after. And, and so, um, you know, we're backing up into chapter 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was perhaps his most important and most public sign in his ministry. And John's gospel tells us that because of that, many believed in Jesus and the Jewish leaders began planning to put him to death. And so this is where we start. This is where we have some examples of this irony. Caiaphas, the high priest, Mm -hmm. advised the chief priest that it's better for you to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. That's John John 11, 50. And so here here we also have a little bit of that irony as well in that right the verse right before the beginning of this section, the Pharisees bemoaned the fact that the whole world had gone after Jesus, and so now we have some Greeks who are among mm-hmm. the pilgrims to the Passover, and they seek out Jesus. Both of those, I think, are intended by the gospel writer to show some irony. You know, the, the Pharisees think the whole world, they, their, their whole world was the Jewish people. Right. Uh, guess what, guys? It's, it's a bigger problem than you think. The whole world is bigger. Yeah, 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 <laughs> we yeah. We got some, we got folks from the Greek world who are coming in too. Well, it seems very intentional on in John's writing to write it this way. Yes. Um, to get us yes. to um, yes. realize who Jesus is, I think. One of the things is we'll talk about with our reformers are these Greeks. And so I want you to tell us a little more about who these Greeks are. Well, th- yeah, it is, it is um, Hellenes, um, and it's just simply the, the, the Greek term for Greek people. We don't really know who they are. Um, we can, my we my can assumption, s- they were always just Gentiles. Uh, so, but maybe that's an assumption because it's different. You know, here's the thing. Um, John's gospel doesn't talk about the Gentiles much. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we're familiar with that term from the synoptic gospels. Right. Um, so perhaps, you know, perhaps this is John's way of describing the fact that folks from the Gentile world have heard about Jesus and that they're coming and they're interested in, in meeting him. You know, basically, the point is these were not Jewish people, and they were people from outside the Jewish community coming to seek Jesus. Uh, again, um, so talk about um, a little bit more about how this addition of the Greeks gives us a new sense of who, what, who Jesus was reaching. Well, it, it seems to be a turning point, a real turning point in the Gospel of John, because up to this point um, in John's Gospel, there's a repeated emphasis that Jesus' hour had not yet come. We see it at the wedding in Cana. We see it a couple other times. But now something about the appearance of these Greeks and leads the hours come. <laughs> Jesus to determine, yes, that his hour had indeed yeah. t- come. And, and so, you know, this again is a shift in John's gospel. And it's almost like the shift that you see in the synoptics when Jesus begins to predict his right. passion. It's a very significant shift in, in John's gospel. I think you told me this particular word is really only used in John. Is that correct? Um, and in fact, uh, this word only occurs in the entire gospel tradition here. This is the only okay, place that's... in the entire gospel tradition where Jesus is said to have interacted with Hellenists. So this is Greeks. very, in- so this is an intentional word. And, yeah, and, and I think so. Um, not something to be overlooked, which by the way, I probably would have done right. had I not come to this podcast myself because 
it's easy for us to overlook the significance. We've heard the passage mm-hmm, so many times, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry and in, and in John's gospel, Jesus' hour has come. And in, in John's gospel, the theme of Jesus' hour signifies that he has a sense that his mission and ministry are headed toward a conclusion with his death and glorification. For some reason, the arrival of this, these Greeks signals to Jesus that now is the time to head toward that final conclusion. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So then we hear another word we've heard before, another phrase, son of man. Um, so tell us how John uses this term. Is it the same as the synoptics use it? Can we understand it in the same context or does it have a different sense here? That's a good question. I would say I see the son of man sayings in John's gospel as, um, evidence that John is in contact with the same gospel tradition that the synoptic writers were using. And so, uh, to me, this is this is uh, one of the parts of John's gospel where we see we see the language of John's gospel tying it mm-hmm. back into the Jesus of the synoptics. So this is a point of connection, I think, okay. with the synoptic gospels. Um, now, in the gospel tradition, I think generally it's quite clear that Jesus referred to himself primarily as the son of man. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, this sort of lends this statement, a ring of authenticity when compared with the synoptic Jesus. But at the same time, it expresses a uniquely Johannine theme of the son of man being glorified. That's only a theme in John's Mm -hmm. gospel. The, The synoptic gospels speak of the glory of the son of man at his parousia, when he comes with glory on the clouds and with angels. Mm -hmm. But in John's gospel, the Son of Man's glory, his glorification occurs at the cross. At the crucifixion. It occurs at his being lifted up, which is, by, by the way, again, there's a little bit of irony here. It is the word hupsao, which means to lift up or exalt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we're used to thinking of the cross as Jesus' humiliation. Right. But in John's gospel, it is his glorification, and uh, it so and it includes, very likely, the whole movement of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. It's, it seems as if John sees that as all a part of one piece. Part of one piece. And yeah. that, that's kind of, that's going to be important for the Christology of our reformers mm-hmm. as we talk about this later, is how this is treated here and how we really understand who Jesus is. I find it interesting that Jesus is not glorified in John's gospel without simultaneously glorifying the Father, mm-hmm. which to me sounds like a very Hebrew Bible thing, you know, that everything, any anyone who is going to serve God, you know, they're going right. to seek to glorify God. And well, it's all about the glory of the Father. So, okay, let's let's continue moving on. What we have here in, in the next verse is a whole, I mean, this whole passage is full of uniquely Johannine constructions and uniquely Johannine themes. In John's gospel, what follows is a saying that's found only here, again, in the whole gospel tradition. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains as just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Mm-hmm. That's only found here in the whole gospel tradition. Well, and interesting, again, when you first look at that your, your, your mind automatically goes to the sower. And you, uh, so go ahead and, and process this for everybody. With yeah. Well, it, it, it does remind us of the sower, and Jesus has, has used this analogy in the Synoptic Gospels, but the parable of the sower has a very different point. 
The point here is that if you leave a grain of sea, a, a grain of wheat, say, in a bag or on the table or something like that, it's just going to stay the way it is, mm -hmm. you know. But if you plant it, it dies, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And out of the death of the seed comes the new plant that grows. And so the idea then is um, that... Um, Jesus is applying what seems to be kind of a truism related to agriculture to, in a figurative way, to his own death. Mm -hmm. As a seed must die in the ground in order for the new plant to sprout mm -hmm. from it, mm -hmm. so Jesus must die in order to bear much right. fruit. Which again, it's it's funny how John combines phrases that, that um, you hear on the lips of the synoptic Jesus bear much fruit. Mm -hmm. That seems to be more characteristic of the synoptic Jesus mm -hmm. than the Johannine Jesus, although it is found in John 15. Um, along with this very unique, um, this saying that only occurs yeah. in John's gospel and yeah. the whole gospel tradition. So you have this combination of, of, of the, the, the consistency of the Johannine Jesus with the rest of the mm -hmm. gospel tradition and the uniqueness uh, mixed right all in together. Part of Part of what's going through my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, maybe John's community, it still hasn't quite gotten it, or in his way, clarifying it. In my mind, it's always been more the idea that John is addressing a community, or John's gospel is addressing a community that is far removed from the original Jewish setting of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, it doesn't mean that the Johannine Jesus is non-Jewish, but I think what we do is, what we find is that some of the more Jewish ideas In that Jesus taught sure. are being translated oh, in different sure. terms, like light and darkness, like eternal life, oh, sure. like those kinds of things. Those are, those that are help almost people Greek understand. sounding. Well, and they help people understand. Sure. And it's not surprising that... A lot of folks in the church tend to dwell on John's presentation of Jesus because we understand eternal life a lot better than we do the kingdom of God. Well, true. And I'm thinking about this, you know, John's community, you're starting to get away from people that would have experienced Jesus in his actual person. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. so so um, there's other sayings that are also unique to John. Give us some idea of what those might be. Yeah. So next comes some sayings about what it means to follow Jesus. And again... They sound like what we hear in the Synoptic Gospels, but the actual way in which they're worded is very is is unique. It, it's only found in John's Gospel. And so the first one we have is those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And again, that sounds like the sayings from the Synoptic Gospels that we looked at in connection with Mark 8. Um, you know, uh, and, mm -hmm. it's, and, and the way mm -hmm. it's translated it sounds exactly like that. But the language here is unique, and the translations kind of obscure that to some extent. Instead of losing one's mm -hmm. life and finding it, Jesus actually speak about those who love their life, destroying it. Yeah. And, and the verb is apalumi, which is also the word for perishing in John's gospel. So, so they are they are on the road toward perishing if you try to hang on to your life and love it mm -hmm, that way. Mm -hmm. While those who hate their life guard it for eternal life. And again, um, while many will point out that, that hating is a is is a fairly Semitic um, uh, exaggeration for for loving something less than you love uh, something that's more important. 
Um, nevertheless, you don't have a lot of hate language. The language Mm-mm. of hate, you know, to follow me, you have to hate right, this. Right, right. Uh, it is found occasionally in the synoptic tradition, but, but this is unique. And then the whole phrase, guarding it for eternal life. Again, that's a... Sound has a very Johannine ring mm-hmm. to it. So the idea is similar to what's found in the synoptic tradition, but the language represents the uniquely Johannine Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so what's the next, what is the next saying that Jesus would then use? Um, so yeah, the, the second saying also has no parallel anywhere else in the gospel tradition. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, my father will honor. And again, the ideas remind us of what we saw in Mark chapter 8, but the language is unique to John's gospel. Uh, where I am, there my servant will be also. Reminds me of if I go mm-hmm. and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Mm-hmm. So that sounds very Johannine. And this is the only place in John's gospel also where diakonos is used to refer to those who follow Jesus in discipleship. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, my servant. And, and, you know, we don't have that language in the synoptic gospels. They're called disciples. They're not called servants. Uh, you know, what whereas later in the New Testament, you know, those who are leaders in the Christian movement are called diakonos. Mm-hmm. You know, here here again we have some similar language or some similar ideas to the to the synoptic gospels that the language is very unique. Let me ask you this. To what extent do you think this has to do with shift in the language that's naturally happening as people are speaking it? In this case, perhaps the use of diakonos may have been influenced by the wider usage of that that in the church. And I think John's community would have been very familiar with that. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that really strikes me, though, here is, you know, in Mark's gospel, we had this, whoever is ashamed of me in my words of that person, I will be, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes with the glory of his his angels, Mm -hmm. you know, and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Here, it's more of a positive spin you know, on, on the cost of discipleship, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you, if you, if you hate your life in this world and guard it for eternal life, then, uh, where I am, my servant will be also, and whoever serves me, the father will honor. So it's much more of a positive spin on the outcome of discipleship Mm -hmm. here. Okay. Okay. Now we're ready to go on to this question about, you know, when you read John's gospel, there's a much more positive sense of his impending death that he understands he, under, he understands, and he, he embodies that this is what he has to yeah. do. He seems more confident about it. More confident death. about yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the next scene where, where it talks about how Jesus' soul is troubled um, and ponders whether to ask the Father to save him from this hour, you know, that's reminiscent, I think, of the synoptic scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, yes. but it has a very uniquely Johannine message. Yes. You know, um, while Jesus acknowledged, acknowledges that his hour has come and that he now expresses a very understandable concern that his soul is troubled, the Johannine Jesus does not display the very human anguish over the prospect of his impending death that we are all used to hearing from the synoptic Jesus. Um, The Johannine Jesus expresses his confidence that he has come to this hour for this very reason. And so rather than asking God to take this cup away, in this scene where where Jesus is contemplating his hour leading to his death, he prays in a way that is characteristic of John's gospel, Father, glorify Glorify your your name. name. And I think, you know, 
this seems to be almost a very the very you know polar opposite of what Jesus prays in the synoptics. Father, yeah. if it is possible, let this cup be taken away from me. In John's gospel, Jesus prays, Father, glorify mm-hmm. your name. Mm-hmm. Why, again, why, why does John portray it this way? Is, is, it, is it because he's trying to emphasize um, that John is, or excuse me, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine? Is he trying to emphasize that divinity? Or S- Some have pointed that out, and, and, and those who go there say that that John almost makes Jesus so divine that we can't relate to him as a human being. Um, And I don't really think that's what's going on here. Really what I think, you know, again, it's, it's John is this incredibly interconnected, interwoven tapestry of a theological document. And so, you know, from the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. From, we saw from right. the beginning when he cleansed the temple in John's gospel. You know, Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days I will build it. So right. John's gospel presents the story of Jesus as, you know, he knows what's going to happen from the very outset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he has has already made up his mind, apparently, that he is going to walk the path that is going to lead to the cross. And so right. when he comes to this place, when, his, when he realizes that his hour is at hand, right. instead of seeing what I think the synoptics give us, which is a, very, a glimpse at the very human right. aspect of Jesus, shrinking away perhaps from the anguish of death on a cross, we have a jo- the Johannine Jesus expressing his intention, his firm and settled intention, that he is going to follow through with the plan, mm-hmm. and, and that his intention is that by this, God's name would be glorified. And so, um, you know, again, some might be asking, well, which one is the real Jesus? Again, I think we, I think we have to see both. Both, and Because mm-hmm. even, in, even in Mark and Matthew and Luke, when Jesus prays, you know, let this cup pass away right. from me, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Right, right. So it's still there. It's still present a little bit there in terms of that. I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I, you know, there, there's, there's a sort of a, 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 a nod to the fact that Jesus was troubled here. Some people want to say, you know, that the full uh, anguish that Jesus experienced, you know, in Gethsemane, according to the Synoptic Gospels, is implied in John's Gospel. Yeah, that's where, you're, that's think, where our reformers go. I think that's, over, I think that's overstating the case. It's, it's sort of a, it, it's a passing comment that Jesus mm-hmm. was troubled. The main emphasis here is, for this reason I've come to this hour, so... My prayer is, Father, glorify your name by whatever I do from here on out. Okay. Okay. Let's, um, let's, let's, let's move on because there's still more. (laughs) So then we get this whole voice from heaven, this thunder clap is how the people present uh, view it. And, and I noted when reading it that there's a group of people this time, um, often when, in, in our past, when we've had voices from heaven, it's been to Jesus or in the transfiguration, and there's been a couple around. So now we've got people around. So again, let's talk about this. What is this? Yeah. So, you know, again, this is the only place in John's gospel where a voice from heaven acclaims Jesus. And, you know, that's in contrast with the synoptics where right. there's a voice from heaven both at the baptism and at the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. 
And here, again, this Johannine voice from heaven speaks in terms very characteristic of the John's Gospel. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So this whole theme mm-hmm. of, of Jesus being glorified and, and by the, you know, in the process by which Jesus is glorified, the, the name of the Father is going to be glorified. This is a very Johannine theme, and it it's just runs throughout the Gospel. So again, the focus of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel is glorifying the Father. And mm-hmm. at the, the point mm-hmm. of Jesus' whole, the whole point of Jesus' hour, really, is that it is time for him to be glorified through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so, you know, we have this voice from heaven, and the crowd, it's almost, again, it's almost comical because there's a crowd here. And, and you know, my first question would be where did the crowd come from? <laughs> But, um, you know, they, they, some of them thought it was thunder. And, and yet Jesus says, no, this voice was for your sakes. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a little bit strange, but yet Jesus goes on to explain that. Uh, Jesus, you know, the, the final segment of the passage indicates, I think, what this means. And that is that Jesus glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying Jesus means that the judgment of this world and the, ver- and the word is chrysis, which we saw before in John chapter 3. The judgment of this world is now. Right. Is now. now. And again, this brings a theme clearly associated with the end of time right. in the synoptic gospels, judgment, mm-hmm. into the present context of Jesus' ministry. And so this is where we have what has been called the realized eschatology of John's gospel. Mm-hmm. And one commentator even said that this is probably the most dramatic expression in the Bible of so-called realized mm-hmm. eschatology. So Jesus says, you know, this voice has come because this is what's going to happen. You know, um, I'm going to glorify the father by everything I do. And the implication or the, or the, the, that's drawn out by the, by the gospel writers is that, as Jesus glorifies the Father, the Father is going to glorify Jesus, and all of this means the judgment of the world takes place now. Wow. Which yeah. is kind of strange. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, if you got question marks and and you know, if you're if you're if you're getting a little dazed at this point, don't worry. I mean, I mean, this is where things get a little bit strange for those of us who are more used to the voice of the synoptic Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. But in this context, it would seem that the judgment of the world primarily consists of the fact that the ruler of this world will be driven out, uh, which is, which is what follows up. You know, now is the judgment of this world because the ruler, because now the ruler of the world will be driven out. And I think, you know, we might wonder, well, is this meant to be seen as a result of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, which glorify the Father, and which, and by which in turn the Father glorifies Jesus? And I think John 30, 12, 32 seems to point in that direction. I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, mm-hmm. will draw all people to myself. Now, we read that with a uniquely American Christian uh, uh, perspective, I think. You know, we read that in terms of personal salvation. Mm-hmm. I think in the context of John's gospel, this is really more about um, the fulfillment 
of this dual aspect of Jesus glorifying the Father in the world and the the Father glorifying Jesus in the world. Mm-hmm. And and when Jesus glorifies the Father in the world and the Father glorifies Jesus, and that happens by Jesus being right. lifted up, two things up happen. Two things happen. The ruler of the world is judged and, right. and cast out and driven out, and all people are drawn to him. You know, this is much more of a cosmic statement, I think, than a than a per, than a, a statement personal. on an individual level. And that makes sense with what we with what you have presented so far. And I think it makes more sense within a context of of when John wrote this. Well, right? and it, you know? to me, it makes more sense in the context of John's gospel as a whole. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, as the light of life, Jesus. Um, um, has dispelled the darkness. You know, mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. the this is the this is the thought world. I think of John's mm-hmm. gospel, and 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 so in that respect, Jesus lifting up on the cross, at the resurrection and at the ascension, then deprives the ruler of this world of any power. Right, and and so that means you know then that that people are freed from from the dominion of the the powers of evil, and they are freed to to. Um, embrace life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the, of course, the question in John's gospel is, will they? <laughs> right, right. Now, John twelve thirty three then concludes this whole segment by saying that that his statement about being lifted up, and again, here, this is one place where in John's gospel that, that it's clearly indicated that his lifted up it refers to the kind of death that right. he was to die, that is, on a cross. On a cross. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so finally, we, we hit the end of, of where we're at. Um, um, and we're talking a little bit more about judgment. How does it reflect judgment? So, you know, in order to put John, 20, John 12, 20 through 33, really in its context in John's gospel, in order to understand it, we have to go through to, to go the on. end <laughs> of the gospel, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, or not the end of the gospel, the end of the, the end chapter. Of the ch- yeah. The end because... Of the if we follow the course of the chapter through, we see a different kind of judgment than than what we find in John twenty thirty John twelve twenty through thirty three, and we find the same kind of judgment that we found in John three seventeen through twenty one, um, and basically this segment this section of of John twelve addresses the fact that Jesus has brought life into the world so that those who believe may become children of light. But there are many who do not believe, or many who believe but would not confess it for fear of the Jewish leaders. Mm-hmm. And in that setting, then, Jesus, the Johannine Jesus, repeats the saying that he came not to judge the world, but to save the world, which we saw in John 3.17. Mm-hmm. But he does say, and there's a bit of a clarification here on that theme. He says that the word that I have spoken, which he has spoken as a commandment from the Father that leads to eternal life, that word will serve as judge for those who hear my words and do not keep them. So we have the same tension we saw in John 3, 17 through mm-hmm. 21. Jesus' message and ministry is intended to bring eternal life, but those who refuse for those who refuse to believe it, it results in judgment or condemnation. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, there is something of a logic to this characteristically Johannine theology, but I think it's important for us again to remember the setting of the gospel in conflict with the synagogue. Right. There's definitely an us against them mentality. Yes. Yes. And the danger of assuming that we know someone's character and destiny based on their faith or lack thereof in this present time. 
And, and so, you know, while that's very much a theme in John's gospel, uh, that's something that I've tried to push back against a little bit and say, you know, that may have made sense in that setting, but I'm not so sure that that makes sense always for us to prejudge someone's character right. and destiny based on their right. faith or lack thereof. And guess what? Even Calvin's going to say that. Whoa, yes, Calvin. Way to go, dude. Now, I don't know that he says it everywhere, but he does say it in response to this passage. Oh, good for him. Man, (laughs) you made my day. I know, I know. (laughs) He surprises us, and that's where Calvin... Well, because talking like that, I feel like I'm really out there on a limb, you know? (laughs) No, I mean, I'm really... What is fascinating here, and he doesn't necessarily put in those exact words, but, but Calvin is much much nicer in this than we give him credit for when we look at the institutes. And I, I, I think what you see there is the theologian at work. Nice. Um, so yeah, nice. it's pretty cool. Okay. Alan, do you have any last thoughts for us? Again, this is a very dense passage. And one of the reasons why I've tried to really dig into this is because I think if we can get a handle on the themes here, we really kind of have a handle on John's gospel as a whole. Yeah, I think it makes us a little more confident as we approach John. Um, I hope so. From this, so, I hope so. And that, for me, is is huge because yeah. we just don't get to go there very very often if we're doing uh, lectionary work. Right. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. So we're back, and uh, it's Christy's turn to share with us the fruits of her labor in the uh, or the Reformation era. Um, so, Christy, um, how was this passage significant for the reformers? Sure, um, just like um, our experience today and us looking at it, it was a really meaty for them as well. And this really becomes the backbone of their questions about Christology and who Jesus is and how Jesus is in his humanity, as well as his divinity. And so they really use this passage to kind of support um, that dual nature of Christ. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, but they do pull it apart. And so um, I think we can kind of go like we did with us a little bit more verse by verse to kind of talk about some of the things they pointed out. Sure. So you mentioned that they um, they were interested in the Greeks that show up in this passage. How, yeah. how did they how did they approach the Greeks? So the Greeks was really interesting. As I pointed out, that was one of those things that, as a reader, I might have skipped over, but that the reformers did not skip over at all. They were very in tune with it, that these Greeks were there. But interesting is that they were trying to figure out the significance of them and who they were. Oddly enough. All of them um, understood that the Greeks were Gentiles, except for Calvin. Calvin believed that the Greeks were actually Jews. And I Mm. think that's really almost a strange take for him because he's like pulls that out all on his own. But his theory is that these are Jews that aren't living... um, aren't living in Judea, that mm-hmm. had been part of the diaspora, and that were now more in tune with their, you know, the Greek um, surroundings than they were with Judaism, but that they indeed were Jews. And his his argument is because they come to worship later. Uh, everyone else basically said, look, these are, mm. these are Greeks. Um, and so it was really interesting, but they're like, why... You know, they had a lot of questions. Why didn't they go to Jesus themselves? Why did they go to Philip and Andrew first? And so for them, this was that transition, like we pointed out, that this 
that Jesus was the savior of the world, not just mm. the Jews. Yeah. And even so far as to say, look, this is this is a huge deal here because it the other those Gentiles were considered to be lost mm-hmm. um, to the world, and now there's broader hope for all of humanity. So, mm. like like us, they saw this as a turning point. So so the fact that 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 the Greeks were being attracted to Jesus indicates that he's the savior, not of the Jewish world, but of the whole world. The whole and then world. this is then a focus on Jesus' divinity as well as his humanity. Yes, yes. Mm. That's, mm. that's an interesting train of thought. <laughs> it is, but that becomes a really big, big piece about it. Um, you know, that Jesus' divinity is emphasized here mm. that they couldn't approach him if he were just human if, if if he were actually god that they somehow they had to go through and they also said that look uh. this isn't a point that where the disciples are going to be start doing the the work of um spreading the gospel to huh. um so they they the approach Gentiles. they approach philip why do they approach philip and not jesus directly yeah, yeah. that's why explaining yeah. a it's a foretaste of the disciples doing this work and that jesus is divine and that they are so far away from that divinity <laughs> themselves that then they, they can't approach him directly so i think i'd have to say they may have read a little bit of that into the gospel i think so too and again i, I made a very much a, a very much a a generalization about it, but I do think it's yeah. it's interesting that they picked up so much energy from this little piece here, which I would have skipped over, right. you know, almost. Right. Yeah. Right. So tell us more about how the how the reformers dealt with some of the unique parts sure. of this passage. Sure. They were also um uh um talking about the the wheat and the seed um passage part um as well. Um and I think it's I think it matches pretty closely some of the, the pieces that we point out. But it just became such an important part of, of Christ having to die this particular death for the salvation of humankind. Um, uh, an emphasis on, on that physicalness of, of Christ. And remember that you have a Roman Catholic Church that's spending more time emphasizing Christ's divinity. So they're trying to show, hey, this is a very human way to die. Mm. Um, and they wanted us... <laughs> They, 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 they wanted us to focus on that suffering. Um, and we get that with Luther, obviously, mm-hmm. and um, his theology of the cross. I mean, they really wanted to focus on that suffering, that pain, and all those pieces. So mm-hmm. I find this interesting when we talk about the um, John and Jesus because, um, you know, we talk about they didn't skip over at all, like, like we talked about um, um, later on. They didn't skip over all this idea that he... He, he didn't have this very human experience of grief. Mm. They emphasize even that little tiny piece in there that we're like, oh, that's kind of a skip. They totally wrap mm. around. And it depends who it is, right, of course. Casper uh, Kreutzinger, who I love, he just comes at the gospel with just this, this bleeding heart. Mm. And I love that about him. And it's always about caring compassion. and compassion. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, every time I read him, I'm just more and more... Um, drawn to his message. They clearly recognize, uh, obviously, that this saying is referenced to Jesus. There's no doubt in their mind about mm-hmm. that. Um, and as as part of Jesus's kind of revelation of who he is, um, which I think is really important for these folks who are trying to emphasize um, the scriptural Jesus as opposed to this kind of um, 
divine only Jesus. You know, the, the reformation, um, um, is also part of um, a reaffirmation of what is truly Christian, and so they're going to reaffirm those those core um, those core doctrines of the church. And of course, they all get questioned again at that time too, as there's people that have, are are being kind of reawakened to the scripture. So yeah. um, this this is a piece for them there. Um, but again, I think that's important because. Every so often we do that in, in modern day as well. Sure. And so, again, reminding us of this kind of historical process of the church by which we, which we affirm, yes, but these are the tenets on which we really, we really don't go away from. These are the tenets of which um, God has revealed. The essential tenets of the faith, the faith. so to speak. God yeah. has revealed Jesus to be. And yeah. Um, yeah. so that's really, really important, I think. Um, and... Uh, they also move on um, that uh, uh, what laying down your life would mean. Um, this idea of, of not being too fond of this life. Mm. Um, of uh, That you can get so caught up in your business of life that you lose sight of Christ. Heinrich Bullinger. Bullinger surprised me. He almost went into kind of a, uh, a monk type type definition saying oh so you know we should not be giving in to the flesh at all and mm. um we should be um just looking at christ and calvin is the one that backs up from that and he says hey wait a minute um god gave us this life and this is a good life creation was good um but his point was we need to think of ourselves as pilgrims towards that end in Christ. So we need to walk in this life. I think it really reflects kind of his takes on mm. sanctification yeah. later on, but it gives us some space. Um, it gives us some space to be human. It gives yeah. us some, some space to make mistakes. And I thought that was just a huge yeah, deal from yeah. him because many have if you will, almost the born again kind of mentality. Oh, once you're born again, you're going to do everything perfect and you can't do anything badly. Now, oddly enough, though, in the Reformed Church with all the strict rules, it kind of functions that way. So there's a, mm. there's a difference between function and reality. Yeah. Um, function, uh, the real church as it's functioning in Geneva, for example, and what Calvin actually says. Right. And I think we see that quite a bit with Calvin. Um Bruce Gordon, who wrote one of the more contemporary um, biographies of Calvin, believes that Calvin came to this position because he's looking at his native France, where there's indeed a, 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 a movement, um, a Reformation movement going on. People have be, are jumping into Reformed faith, and yet they're not actively resisting um, the Roman Catholic tradition. And there was quite a bit of criticism there that that Calvin wasn't being harsher on those folks, but I think he thought in reality that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And so are they by still, you know, going to Roman Catholic mass and yet claiming to be Protestants, you know, are they, are, are they truly sinning? And he kind of has shifted back and forth on that, but ultimately I think he came up with, you know, that's a pretty terrifying space to be in. Yeah. And maybe because Well, he, and perhaps that's that's their way of laying down their lives. You yeah. Know? And, yeah. And uh, perhaps we should pause and say here that, you know, in 
I'm not surprised that they, when they, when they're looking at this saying about Jesus prepare, comparing his death to a seed falling in the earth and dying, that they go to the theme of laying down your life because that's also very characteristic in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. That's the way Jesus speaks about his death. He is laying down his life. No one takes it from him. He lays it down on on his, on his own. Right. And so you know I, that makes it really understandable that they that they would reflect on how laying down Jesus laying down right, your life right. his life for us then reflects sh- in terms of our laying down our lives absolutely so yeah. they 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 move from one step to the next you know as an emulation of Christ that we should be willing to do this and yet Calvin seems to recognize the human failing there mm-hmm. the sinfulness there and 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 uh, that that keeps us from maybe being able to step out. That we 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 aren't going to be in that perfect imitation of Christ. Very, in, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm more familiar there. with the with the um, struggle between the English Protestants and Catholics. And you know, uh, to me, I would think, yeah, some folks perhaps going to a Catholic mass, uh, even though you claim to be a Protestant, they might have done so out of fear. But, um, you know, we know that there were many people who remained within the Catholic Church and bore witness to their Protestant uh, convictions Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and their reforming ideas. And, you know, they did lay down their lives because of it. And so, you know, perhaps that was an act of courage on their part. Well, and Calvin would say that as well of the French that did that, but he just has a little bit more heart, or at least he says so in a couple of these spaces for these French that, that didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, you wonder, people wonder why, um, perhaps because he had a beloved wife himself, sure. um, uh, had felt his own pain, perhaps because he himself had, had, had run from persecution himself. Hard to say. Well, um, it's easier to take a bold prophetic stance when it's just you. Right. But when you have, when you have a spouse and children that, that are also impacted by it, it's a lot harder. Uh, yeah, and he seems to have a heart. Now, he doesn't have any, any space at all for, um, for folks that are claiming to be leaders in the church, but then are giving lip service to two things. Uh, that he doesn't have patience for. But for the average Christian, he seems to think, he seems to have some space for their, their lack of ability to stand up to the, to the Roman Catholic presence. So it's there. And I think that's interesting. I, I don't think a lot of people know that's there because they're looking at the practicality of how Geneva ran, which tended to be very strict. I thought that was an interesting, interesting yeah. piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what other implications did the, the reformers find in this idea of the seed uh, dying uh, in terms of our discipleship? Yeah. Um, so, again, we know that the, the seed is definitely Jesus. Um, um, and that, again, that he must die for anyone, everyone to be saved. Um, and, again, that... Uh, he is then the, the, the seed by which all life then is going to be preserved. Um, interestingly, and I think one of the interesting people here is Martin Bootser. Now, remember, Bootser's Strasbourg. So this is a Swiss reformer, um, very prominent. In many ways, maybe more prominent than Calvin at the time. Um, but we forget about that. Um, but he was the one to claim that... Um, that it was the elect then that who would be the ones who would um, be recognized um, 
than in the world after uh, after the death and the, if you will, the resurrection, um, that the, the seeds would come out of it. I think that's really, really interesting that he pulls the elect out of that. Mm, I, yeah. I don't see that, but it's... No. Um, and, and what's interesting is they're not all there, but I, I think it's a reminder that in these as they have their as they have these broad theologies about how God works that they sometimes show up then as they're interpreting these passages. So here's this passage. They read them in, yeah. Yeah, here's this passage and I think it's really reflexive. Well, did God save the whole world? And actually Calvin, who's Calvin's is more hopeful than Bootser here, but Bootser's ideas about predestination definitely influenced Calvin later on. Um, so I think that's just an interesting point he makes about this, is that he, he reads it in, well, okay, um, yeah, Jesus did save the whole world in this death and resurrection, um, took on our sins for us, but only those who have been chosen mm. are the ones then that will ultimately, are ultimately saved. And so I find that it, an interesting leap. Well, I mean, but you know, if you look at the end of the chapter, I mean, that's the, the same kind of logic is almost there. I mean, it's not as far developed as 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 a as a predestination theology of of, of the reformers is, but um, you know, you do have this thing mm-hmm. of you know that the those who be, who don't believe they're judging themselves to, to some extent. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and of course, again, it's back to questions we've had in the past is belief, is that something you were given or is that something you choose? Mm-hmm. And there seems to be just a little bit of conflict about that. Um, and here's this case of Jesus knew what was going to happen. This reflects God's sovereignty over all. This reflects that, you know, almost a, almost a high determined kind of, of mm-hmm. process by which the world's going to run. So God's predetermined. And sovereignty is predetermination. Exactly, yeah. which which in the modern day we don't recognize. Right. We recognize uh, this this providence mm-hmm. idea, but not that everything you do is predetermined. Right. And yet, and yet, I think that's kind of what they're struggling with here. You know, Bootser dies, and then Bootser and some of the other reforms, as you know, that goes into a very very conservative um, tradition, the Synod of Dort. And so, mm-hmm. but remember, Calvin gets looped together with the folks at the Synod of Dort who right. come to this very very harsh and defined look. If you aren't behaving exactly this way, then you are clearly damned, and really influences the Dutch reform tradition, and and right. um, then comes into. Um, um, the, the Reformed Christian tradition, as opposed to the Presbyterian tradition, where the softer Calvin comes through. And, and of course, if you're a Presbyterian, we don't talk about tulip, right. but they talk about tulip. Right. So um, I think that's I think that's what we're seeing here, and Bootser's ideas get wrapped into that as well. And, mm. and Bootser actually wouldn't be a fan of tulip either, by the way. Um, but, um, again, some of the ideas that he presents become kind of molded then into that extreme what i call that extreme reformed tr- mm-hmm. tradition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um so keep that in mind so we're moving on um one of the big pieces here is is again i mentioned before this christology but they're very concerned with christ's soul um which i think is really really interesting um and in part, you know, what did Christ feel there as he's in this prayer um, and this idea that he um, anguished about this distress that Christ had in this experience? And mm. 
I felt, like Alan mentioned before, it reflected more of Jesus at Gethsemane um, that was reflected by the synoptics than here. But they pulled it out right here, and they said this anguish and distress that Christ experiences is reassuring for us. Mm. Um, Well, I think for a long time there was this felt need to harmonize the, the synoptic Jesus with the Johannine Jesus. And I think in the Reformation era, we're still Absolutely. very much in that space. They harmonize it all. I yeah. mean, right? Yeah. We have that all, they collapse all the Gospels, and then here's they, John. They don't really have um, the, sort of the awareness of Gospel origins to be able to allow them to say, well, Absolutely. this is the way the synoptic Jesus speaks, but the Johannine Jesus speaks a bit yeah. differently. Yeah. And to see those as complementary. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's what we're definitely seeing here in their minds, yeah. at least, right? Yeah. And so, and so they're really drawn to that, um, but they're also drawn to this, what they call um, the, the Jesus's will. And I think one of the interesting pieces is here is what is sin and what's not sin. So there's this idea of, um, you know, if you're not doing what God says, you're sinning. But here's Jesus who is actually having these, I don't want to do mm. what your will is for mm-hmm. me. And they have, they disagree as to what that means. And at least... Wow, so perhaps some of them thought that that, that for Jesus to, to be reluctant to go to the cross was sin. Well, that was one of the question marks. How do we define that with Jesus who does not sin? How do we make sense of that? And so if you pull, a, if you pull apart your divine and your human Christ, then you can say, well, it is sin because that was his human nature ah, doing that. Right. And, and what I think is particularly interesting here is that um, instead of pulling that apart, um, is this idea that you could put it together and say, look, the, the idea that we question our call in our life is not necessarily a sin. Um, that, that the questioning is part of our humanity, and that's good. And I think that's really a really important development that comes out of this time period because it's saying, look, we might, our human might be at odds at what God wants us to do, and we can really fight with God about that, and that's okay. Hmm. I mean, that's kind of what that, they're yeah, saying. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and 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 then and then if we listen, um, we can still follow to God's. But the questioning itself, and how often do we do we work with people who feel guilty because they feel badly about what they think God's called them to do? You know, so there's a pastoral motivation. There's there, a pa- right? yeah, 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 and there's this sense of you know maybe it's a. Um, Oh, I, I felt so guilty because I, you know, I, I, I really, I really need to help walk with my mother towards, you know, um, uh, Alzheimer's care or something like that. And I, I feel guilty. And yet I think, I know this is the right thing to do. And, and, and so they feel guilty about the guilt, you mm. know, even. And so, and they're, and, uh, it, it really allows for some, some space to, to forgive yourself and um, to say, look, this isn't a sin in itself to have these, or I feel really guilty that um, I'm not spending more time with, I don't know, my child. Um, And I feel guilty about feeling guilty, but I have to go work to make, to, to find food for them. Mm -hmm. So it takes away that space saying, you know, Jesus had this guilt too, mm, and yeah. and 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 that was or okay. Least, it's not a sin. Least, he at least felt a sense of reluctance. If, yeah, yeah, exactly. So very a very interesting take on that, but lots of concern there. And and 
again, my friend Casper Kreutzinger talks about, you know, look, there's other th- things that we experience that are human, um, hunger, thirst, that's the way we're created. Those aren't sins. Those are fleshy things, but those aren't sins. That's how we're created. So it also gives space for being human mm-hmm. and that just being human in itself isn't a sin, which is a huge shift from your Roman Catholic tradition that says, look, if you're doing all these things that are human, you know, we, we want to completely mortify the flesh, purge you know, yourself, purge yourself. all fleshly exactly. desires or motivations, exactly. inclinations. Yeah. <laughs> now, as I said, Bullinger actually went there, which kind of kind of threw me for a loop, but Bullinger can get pushed on being kind of extreme on the other, on the other side. I mean, he's kind of the extreme side of the reformed tradition. So maybe uh, that's where that came from, from him, but I was surprised <laughs> to say <Yeah>. the least. <laughs> um, and so, um, moving on, um, interestingly enough, they talk a little bit, you know, this whole part of, of glory that we also talked about. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, they use this in part, it, it really reflects uh, theology of the cross. In other words, um, um, this idea that uh, that God's glory is in that death on the cross. I mean, that that comes there um um and and again reflecting that that emphasis they're making on on both natures of christ there also that that is an important piece it's not separate it's not that we are divorcing it from the resurrection but that's that's part of that um and so very uh very very interesting pieces here the thunder which is really interesting (laughs) um they're they claim that those who were there uh, heard it were lazy. <laughs> they not didn't aware pay close of God's attention. presence. They didn't pay enough attention. Um, and and another reformer um, compares it to the time, uh, it takes it right to, right to his contemporary time, saying, and this is when people hear the gospel and don't respond in your congregation. <laughs> they think it's they think all they hear is thunder in the sanctuary. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're not listening. And, and so he goes into this whole ex- explanation of, you know, they're not paying attention, or you ask them about the sermon afterwards, and they really don't know what you said because they were distracted by something else. And he said, look, this is what's going on here. They're not actively listening for God's presence. And in that's their voice. sin. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> it's a little bit scary to me. <laughs> I know, it, it, it's, it's interesting what they hear out of this. Um, yeah. But they also picked up um, on that this was, you know, the first time that, that God announced this to the people. And I had mentioned this in an earlier segment. Um, and that this is a quite a big deal is that this is God's announcing who God, Jesus is. So it's a reminder of Jesus. Um, Jesus divinity that mm. that piece that we pick up with John all John um, you know who is who is Jesus. so the fact that the heavenly voice speaks to Jesus is an indication uh-huh. of Jesus divinity exactly uh. it, it's like a it's like a, we've had all this all these things happen that you have been able to to witness and now here's another affirmation right from God's own voice mm. um, so if you're paying attention you it it, it, it's like the little bell going off in their in their minds going on um, that they hears hear and tells them who it is, um, and uh, um, Calvin Calvin um, finally uh, believes that uh, this whole experience and I thought this is really interesting is part of the restoration of the world um, um, that culminates in the death 
and that this is all necessary for a full restoration. Um, so it, it rang a little bit of, um, of what you were talking about, that kind mm. of cosmic sense, right. which I thought was interesting that Calvin had kind of come to that space. Yeah. Um, um, but it can't be established until, um, until there's this recognition that out of the flesh dying, um, that's reduced to nothing, that the Christ has to die mm-hmm. um, in order for us to uh, realize our full selves. Um, that's how we find Christ life. And how we find life, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So lots going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we'll take a break there and uh, come back. Yeah, sounds good. Hi, everybody. We are back. And um, as we took our break, I was thinking about this um, uh, passage. And uh, what what was striking me was I remembered when I worked as a chaplain, and, and I'd have so many folks that were, after reading John, um, and even, even the passage in here, you know, those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, and they were using this, and there was always a great fear that, Somehow, if somebody didn't understand the gospel, didn't believe, um, or didn't follow Christ, that they, they were damned to eternity, and there was always this big stress. It was like their whole life functioned around that, and um, I think we hear that in our congregations, and instead of bringing hope, this actually brings despair. And so I want Alan and I to kind of process um, what what the what the problem is with reading John in this kind of context is. Well, I think it's kind of twofold. As I mentioned before, you know, um, I don't know if it's laziness, like the reformer said, but we don't tend to put forth the effort to really kind of try to digest like the book of John as a whole and really kind of grasp the message as a whole. And, and, and this is what we do throughout the Bible. You know, most people, they're more comfortable pulling out individual verses. And, and what happens is you sort of string those, those proof texts into a kind of simplistic theology that then you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot. Right. you know, in various traditions in the church. Um, and, you know, if you do that in John's gospel, you can just make, make it say whatever you want to if you, if you take yeah. Scripture yeah. out of context like that. So that's part of it. I think part of it is, though, that, you know, for whatever reason, Maybe it's the maybe it's the theological tradition of some aspects of the church. Maybe it's the the cultural um, context of of our society. We view salvation as something that is primarily about the individual. Absolutely. Are you saved? Are you saved? What yep. have you done to be saved? And so, it, it, salvation is turned into this sort of transaction between the individual and God. And so, God sets up all the conditions and makes it possible for us to do the things that we need to do in order for us to complete the transaction. And if we do, then we're good. And if we don't, then we're lost. Right, right. And, and, you know, the reality is, especially in John's gospel, and as we saw in this passage, you know, that's not 
the perspective that Jesus is presenting here. Mm-mm. You know, Jesus is presenting here a perspective that says, you know, everything I do is meant to glorify God and to fulfill God's purpose, or as he says it later on in the chapter, God's commandment, which is for eternal life. Right. Now, you know, again, we say, well, well yeah, that's individual salvation. No. no eternal not- life is the way John translates the kingdom of God. Yeah. And that's a bigger concept than just my relationship right. with God. Right. It's about... Um, it's about renewing all creation. It's about it's about um, setting us free from everything mm-hmm. that binds us. It's about um, restoring creation to the, to the very good place it was when it was created. It's about um, um, a world, a whole world, a whole cosmos right. that is being reconciled to God. Right. And and so we see this, I think, in that, you know, Jesus is, is intent on glorifying God's uh, name by um, fulfilling um, uh, his uh, sense of, of calling to go to the cross um, and... And, you know, the, the voice that comes from heaven that sort of assures him that, yes, you know, I will be glorified by that and there will be even more that mm-hmm. will happen, you know. And, and the implication is that God is affirming that, that Jesus will be glorified. Jesus will be restored to his former glory, as the illusion is in mm-hmm. John chapter 17 when he prays his prayer to God. And so when we when we look at it that way then the whole the whole framework is a big much bigger picture. Not, it's yeah, it's not yeah. just the individual, it's the whole world of humanity. Right. It's not just the world of humanity, it's the created order. It's not just the created order, it's the whole cosmos. Yes. It's the yeah. whole thing. It, you know, it's everything that is whether there are spiritual realities, whatever, all of it is to be reconciled right. to God. And so this is the judgment, you know, the the powers that oppose God are going to be disempowered and they're going right. to be stripped of that power. And Jesus being lifted up from the earth, which is, you know, clearly throughout the Gospel of John as the process by which he is crucified, resurrected, and ascended, and therefore by that process, returns to his mm-hmm. former glory, that affects this total change in the reality, not only of the world of humanity, not only of the world of the natural order, but the whole created cosmos. Right. Right. And that affects this transition. And that's what's at stake here. It's much bigger, it's bigger. than the salvation well, of any one person. It is about ch- transforming all things and changing all right. things. Right, and I yeah. think... It, it, Brilliantly said, by the way, but and I think the problem is that our our worldview right now is so individualistic. Our entire our entire framework for understanding who ourselves always comes back to me. I mean, that's part of our modern space that we're in, um, and we tend to look that way in terms mm-hmm. of church, and then we tend to look that way in terms of our loved ones. And you know, we see places in Scripture where we t- where where Jesus talks about those people who are believers and it's okay you know mm-hmm. um those who aren't against us are for us you right. know that kind of thing it's right. not it, it's 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 really not that they're they're forgotten because we're talking about a much bigger yeah. space than that but that's so out there i i have to tell a story um so i was in college i took a wonderful class called religious inquiry as a co- uh, undergraduate 
it was a nice um, class, had a lot of different kinds of students in there. But one of the, um, it was Christian inquiry, probably more than, you know, it was a, it was a, a pastor who taught the class. But I had a student who came up to me who, who said, well, have you asked Jesus to be your personal, you know, Lord and Savior? And I said, well, no. And she said, well, then you're going to hell. And I thought, Wow. And I mean, it was really harsh because that was not my tradition. I was a Presbyterian and I thought, gosh, I've gone to church my whole life. She says, it doesn't matter. You have to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It's all you have to do. And I'm like, I was really confused. I hadn't heard the language before. And um, I found it very, very upsetting. And I found it very judgmental on her end to be able to uh, decide what that I was going to hell because I hadn't made this personal proclamation of faith in that way. And, um, you know, I, I think... I think this leads back then into the opposite too, is these people that are so concerned about the individual that they've forgotten about that being a follower of Christ and what that really means. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I I lived and worked in that world for 20 years, right? I never used that language because (laughs) I didn't like that language at all. Um, But um, I, I think it's two things. I think, I think, you know, it's part of it is this, um, this um, individualized uh, view of salvation as a transaction between you and God, and God has done what His part, and now you have to do your part. Mm-hmm. Whereas, from from our standpoint in the Presbyterian world, we see salvation as an act of God from start to finish, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and our whatever we do is just a response. Uh, really of gratitude to the sovereign grace of God, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And, and, and the other part of it, though, is I think, and this is where I was really talking last week and this week about this whole us against them mentality that you find in some of the New Testament documents. That becomes encoded, I think, into this kind of mindset that if you haven't done the things that I've done. If you haven't, you know, prayed the prayer, you have to pray the prayer. You have to walk the aisle in public. Mm-hmm. Has to be a public confession of faith. You have to pray the prayer, confessing your sins, asking Jesus into your heart. You know, you know, etc., cetera, right. etc. Cetera. It has to follow a script. If you haven't done this, then you're one of them, and that means you're out, and that means you're going to hell. Yeah. And yeah. So to me, that's that's the whole danger of not recognizing that John's gospel is written in a context where this is a this is a community that is under fire they're under attack mm-hmm. and when you're under attack you get defensive and you do draw boundaries uh, that that protect yourself the community against those who are attacking you and you begin to see things from an us against them right, perspective. Right, right. Well, we read this in the in the Bible, therefore we think it must reflect God's eternal truth. Right. Well, yes, the, I mean John's gospel is part of our scripture and yes, it speaks God's truth. God speaks God's truth mm-hmm. to us through this gospel, but um that that cultural setting, that particular historical setting of the Johannine community, I don't think reflects God's eternal truth about how we're supposed to view people who um, may or may not have come to right. faith yet. Right, right. I and, agree, and, and I agree. So I, I think it's partly it's that individualistic view, partly it's that transactional view of salvation, and partly it's that mm-hmm. we've sort of taken the us against them mentality that was part of the historical situation and turned it into an eternal principle. Exactly. An abiding exactly. principle of yeah. God's truth. Exactly. And I think that's a huge mistake. Well, and 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 I, that's where I thought Calvin was so bizarrely contemporary, and, yeah. and his take on this was that, 
Calvin's like, hey, um, you know, it's it's okay to it's okay to be in this life. It's 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 okay to 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 be human, um, and it's okay because because the picture's much bigger than that. Um, the 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 end picture isn't 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 about what you do, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, that God's sovereignty is bigger than that, and yeah. that God operates in a world is bigger than that. And I, I think you know when I think about the Presbyterian tradition, there's always an emphasis on us. It's not individual things aren't really done. And, um, you know, what we are, we are not baptizing separately of the congregation. It's always within the congregation. We are, you know, to go out into the world to, to do our mission work. And we're not to be judging that world as we go, um, that we're going to share all of who we are, um, and assume that, that God, God will take care of other people's hearts. Yeah. You know, I had an interesting interaction on Twitter just today, this morning, Okay, um, a fellow posted about how George Whitfield, who was a famous Methodist preacher along with John Wesley was an enthusiastic slaveholder. And he said something to the effect of either Whitfield wasn't preaching the gospel or just preaching the gospel won't stop systemic injustice. If you know me well enough, probably that you know that I kind of, that phrase, just preaching the gospel kind of hit me. Right. And so I responded, uh, how does one just preach the gospel of the kingdom of justice, peace, and freedom in and through Jesus Christ? So perhaps the gospel of individual salvation is the problem, <laughs> right? Because right. if we're focused on on Jesus' message of the gospel of the kingdom, that is a, that is also, it's a bigger message yeah. that is transformative yeah. it is yeah. it, it creates a community it creates a kingdom but it's much bigger than that right it, right it is transformational for the whole world of humanity yes for the yes. natural world and for the whole cosmos exactly and, and if and so i think you know to me it's a little bit like trusting that god can handle my problems if god is powerful enough to create all things well, if God is powerful enough to redeem all things through Christ, right. and that's really the idea, yeah, right, right, it's right, the right, power right. of what God has done through Jesus Christ, right. through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Exactly. That it's, transforms all things. Well, if God is powerful enough to do that, then why should I worry about the death of a loved one who maybe stayed out of church exactly. for decades because exactly. of some slight they experienced? Or why should, yeah, and why should my entire mission be getting you to, do, to say this? <laughs> commitment say the same prayer pray this exact prayer pray these exact words and you you will have eternal life <laughs> so yeah it, 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 it's fascinating so I, I i once belonged to a church and i their entire mission focus was you just have to go out and get people to just accept this and do this and you go with your evangel cube around door to door on your mission and you tell the story of christ with your evangel cube you got to look it up it's it's a little cube and it opens up with jesus in the middle so they went around with the evangel cube and and um, that was their goal. And I thought an entire mission trip based on your self-centered righteousness, um, on how they obviously weren't saved. You didn't even know what their background was. Um, and that you weren't going to do anything about being the church and responding in love and hope, but rather their only goal was to get them to, to say these words, which they probably didn't know English well enough to say. I mean, it really, really struck me as as a very selfish approach to mission. I don't think they meant it that way, but yet there's a lot of pieces to this that um, sure. 
the ad complexity. Well, I think the bottom line for me is that if you if you read the gospel closely, you find that the purpose of God's sovereign grace is not just about me, myself, and I. It's it's a big purpose. Mm-hmm. It's a big plan. And, you know, again, to me, the God who has the power to create all things, the God who had the power to raise Jesus to new life, that God has the power to complete the purpose of his sovereign grace mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. world. And, and <laughs> it's not just about one person. It encompasses much more than that. And so I think we can have the um, consummate confidence and assurance about our loved ones um, because when they die, they're going into the hands of that God yeah. of yeah. just infinite grace and unconditional right, love. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that can give us a lot of comfort. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, thanks. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.